Hey, um, d- does anyone remember like what you used to have to do before you had a sat nav? Do you remember maps? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Like, we, um, for a whole bunch of years, we would drive from around here and we would get in our car with our children and we would drive all the way down through England and through France to try and get some ultraviolet light. And um, we would do that via maps, right? So, so that, that means lots of maps. And what does also happens when you have lots of maps? Lots of disagreements. That's pretty much how it works. And so... One time, my sister said to me, hey, you could borrow our sat-nav if you like. I was like, you're whatty? Uh, she said, oh, yeah, we've got a sat-nav. I'm imagining in my mind, you know, a great big dish that you strap to the roof of your car or something like that. But no, 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 she hands me this. Well, you know what a sat-nav is. You know, so she hands me this sat-nav. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And so I spent the night before our summer holiday programming the sat-nav you know, all the different stops we were going to make and the place we were staying overnight in the south coast of England and another place we were staying overnight in France, just programming it all in. So we get in the car, we're driving. The kids are going, are we nearly there yet, Dad? In a really ironic way, because you can see exactly how long. It's going to be like 8.37, but, you know, and then lo and behold, you get there, 8.37. I mean, how does it even know that? And uh, then we're driving through France the next day. The temperature's getting hotter and hotter, you know, and we're going, this is a amazing like you know, it's like 31 32 33 it gets up to 37 degrees I'm like this is going to be the best holiday ever and then uh, the sat nav dies well in fact the poor lady she just keeps going recalculating 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 can't switch it off you, you know nothing you press makes any difference we have to stuff her in the boot cover her with stuff and, go, recalculating, recalculating. and so well Taryn says it's all right this is my lovely wife, Taryn. She says, it's okay, we'll be fine. We'll just use the maps. <laughs> the maps. Yes, the maps that I've left in Newbury, you mean. She's like, are you kidding me? She says, so let me get this right. We don't know where we're going, and we don't know how to get there. I said, no, my love, it's much worse than that. Not only do we not know where we're going or how to get there, we also don't know where we are or how we got here. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? Like, how did I get here? How did I get here? Or, where am I supposed to be? Or, I think I know where I'm supposed to be, but how the heck do I get there? It's actually something that's kind of part of the human condition, isn't it? Where we're just desperate to find the way. And actually, I think as a church... That's the place we're at right now. We're desperate to find the way. We're desperate to find the road that leads to everything that God is offering us. We, uh, my wife and I, Taryn and I, we were on sabbatical in the summer. And, and it, it was such a sweet time of just being with God and not having loads of responsibilities for, for three months. And, and during that time, we really felt like the Lord say to us, that actually the place that we're to get to as a church family is a place of, ultimately a place of communion with God. Like we're, we're supposed to be in a place where we're with God. We, we know what God's presence is like to a whole new degree. And we're experiencing his glory, like the weight of his glory in a way that we're not right now. Yeah, like, I, I really hope that 
that no one here is like happy with just staying here. You know, like, I mean, it is actually amazing. Like, just thinking about this site in particular, you know, what would it be like five years ago, something like that? This site wasn't even here. Like, this church didn't even exist in Ellen. Uh, and then Thomas and Mary went off to plant a church in Inverness, and, and most books that you read say, oh, that'll never work. You know, like, you'll never be able to start a church in Inverness, and this will probably go badly. But lo and behold, there's twice as many of us in this site now than there were when Thomas and Mary handed it on. It's amazing. It's like, how did we get here? But, and, and our church as a whole, you might say, wow, it's amazing. It's like quite a big church for Scotland. But you know that we haven't arrived, right? Like we're a long way from where the Lord is taking us to. And so, and so the question then becomes, how do we get there? How do we get to our destination? Or how do we get closer to where God is asking us to be? A place where we know God's presence and know his power in a way that we don't currently at the moment. And so that's where we're going this morning. Like how would we recognize the road to glory? How, how would we know we're on the right road? The road to a greater experience of God's glory. And, and so if you, this, uh, this is the moment to produce your Bible either. Uh, this is like the old school retro version, the kind of analog one. This, feel free if you want to produce a digital one as well. We're, we're going to do, we're, this is the beginning of a new series where Taryn and I are going to look specifically at this whole journey, the journey that the Israelites make from captivity in Egypt to communion with God in the desert. When, so it starts off with God saying to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. It's a promise. It's like when they get to the wilderness, I'm going to meet with them. And then the end of Exodus, the end of the story is, the glory of God descending on this tabernacle that they've built and God being amongst his people, dwelling with his people. And so it's this road from captivity to communion that we're going to look at over the next few weeks and months. But Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, it says this. It's going to come up on the screen as well. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter for God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Okay, so how do we recognize the road that leads to a greater experience of God's presence and his power? The first way we recognize the right road is it's the wrong road. I don't know about anyone else, but I find it really, really difficult to ask for directions. Like, do I get an amen? You know, it's like other people seem to have this superpower where they can just think, oh, I'm lost. Oh, excuse me. You know, they could just interrupt somebody, like going about their daily life, and they could say, excuse me, could you tell us 
where we are, or could you tell us where we, where, where we, how we get to where we're going? Whereas I just can't do that. I don't know whether it's like, an, it's like maybe it would be one admission of defeat too many. It would be the admission of defeat that breaks the camel's back. I just can't bring myself to do it. And so I just wander around places just looking lost and looking like soulfully into people's eyes, hoping that they'll look me back in the eye and say, excuse me, can I, like, you don't seem quite right. Is it, you know, like... Can I, can I help you with something? And I'm like, yes, you can. And, and sometimes that works, but mostly I just wander around. I was wandering around Dunblane recently, just like, what is it the word you Scottish people use? Glake it. Is that right? Is it? <laughs> that is not how the Israelites ended up taking such a strange route to get to the promised land. It wasn't because the person at the front was too proud to ask for a directions. The road that seemed like the wrong road was God's road. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that was shorter. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. Anyone who knew that part of the world would have said, uh, I don't know if you know this, Lord, but you're actually leading us like kind of the wrong way. God's like, no, no. My way is the right way. I don't know. It just feels like there's something about being a Christian. Often you find yourself saying, uh, Lord, I think this is like the wrong way. And God says, no, no, no. I know what I'm doing. Do you know God knows what he's doing? It doesn't always feel like it, does it? God's road is always the right road. I've been studying like revivals, moments when in history where God walks the land for years. And, and do you know the frustrating thing about it is the more you read about the revivals, the more you realize that if you'd been in them, you would have been saying, oh Lord, I think, like, can I just point out some things? Like their theology isn't that great. Or... Like, Lord, surely you know that that person is basically broken. Like, why are you using them? I've, I've looked all over the world. I've looked at where, you know, God seems to be pouring out his spirit, where people seem to be getting healed left, right, and center. Do you know, like, have you ever listened to any sermons from places where there's revivals happening or, like, where people are getting healed? It's an uncomfortable experience because I don't really like their theology very much don't really like the way they use the Bible. It's funny, isn't it? Like God's road doesn't always feel like the right road. I don't hear what I'm not saying. Theology is really important. Reading the Bible is really important. Good Bible teaching, being part of a church that uses the Bible well. I think that's an important thing. I'd want that for my kids if and when they go away to university. But what I'm saying is we just have to be willing to realize that we're not in possession of all of the facts. You know, like, we're, we're basically teenagers. You know, like, most teenagers believe that they know everything, don't they? Like, and they think that we're all idiots. And then, it's amazing, they suddenly think, gosh, it's amazing how much you've learned over the last few years, Dad. It's like suddenly you seem to know something. We're basically teenagers when it comes to the things of God. We think we know it all and we really don't. The right road is often the wrong road, or it feels like the wrong road. That's the first thing. The second thing is, it's the desert road. 
The Israelites come out of Egypt and they're ba- it says they're ready for a fight. Verse 18, the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. I think what the writer is telling us is they're full of bravado. Like they're like, come on then, just point me at the enemy, Lord. I'm ready for it. I'm ready for a fight. I can do this. And God is like, mm, yeah, not so much. And actually what it says is, God didn't lead them on the road through Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. In other words, they think they're ready. They're really not. They think they've got, it, got what it takes. They really haven't. They're full of self-assurance, self-confidence, bravado. And God says, it's not going to work. It's ultimately a comment on their character. They're just not ready. The Lord has this implement that he likes to use to deal with self-confidence and self-assurance. And actually he uses it in the Bible over and over and over again. The implement is called the desert. He takes people to the desert to deal with them. And again, let me just say, like, it, there'll be people in this room, there are always people in our church who like, never really read the Bible before. We don't assume any prior knowledge or experience. Like, that's not part of the deal. But maybe, maybe you know some of the stories or, or, or you've been around church for a while. I'm thinking about people like Jacob. Jacob has, has messed up his life and his family life is just a complete bomb site. He runs away from his family. And he meets God where? The desert. Or Moses. Moses, full of self-confidence. He's like, I'm going to deal with that Egyptian soldier right there. I'm going to start to take this situation into my own hands. Ends up running away, being in the desert for 40 years. And he becomes, the Bible says, someone who God speaks to like a man speaks with his friend. Or David. David spends the the first part of his life tending sheep in the wilderness. And then actually spends a lot of his kingship following that, like running away from situations, hiding in caves and just being in the middle of nowhere. The Bible says, it's a man after God's own heart. The desert is God's implement We're led into the desert full of self-confidence and self-assurance. We come out of the desert clinging to God. Actually, that's what it says. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her beloved? Our friend Mike Pilavachi, who's a crazy Greek, uh, who started a, a festival for young people, ran for 27 years, Soul Survivor, just got an MBE in the New Year's Honours list. So thrilled for him. I thought it was a joke when he posted it on Twitter, but it wasn't. He actually did get an MBE. Uh, he, he, he is one of the most remarkable communicators of our age, amazing leaders. The, uh, you know, the history books will, rec- will be very kind towards him. Um, but he didn't have an easy childhood, he, he grew up in a Greek Cypriot family that didn't speak any English. And so his first day at school, he was the only person who didn't understand a single word that was spoken. 
And so he just learned. It was a very lonely time, his childhood. Just, he learned just to walk around in circles to pass the time in the playground. I think for about two years, he was an elective mute. He didn't speak a single word for two years. He was quite a broken kid. Meets Jesus in his teenage years. Absolutely transformed. Just loves Jesus. And immediately his assumption is, oh, I think I'm going to be like a, a missionary or something like that. Like, uh, and so uh, he writes, uh, he's written this book called Wasteland, which is about the desert. It's an absolutely brilliant book. It's kind of part memoir, part teaching. But in it he describes this kind of um, adolescence and, and young adulthood where he's thinking any minute I'm going to be rescued from all of this to go and be a missionary or be a pastor or something like that. And so uh, he goes off to university and he thinks, well, I don't know why I'm even doing this, but I better pass the time. But, you know, like at any minute now the Lord's going to, rescue me from this and, and eventually he graduates and he gets a job at Harvey Nichols in London as an accountant and it's like a temporary summer job and, and they keep saying to him Mike you know like temporary jobs we can't give you holiday pay we can't give you sick pay we can't give you any pension benefits you kind of need to like accept this permanent contract and he's saying no 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 there's no need for that any day now I'll be rescued he was an accountant for eight years. 29, he's still an accountant. And he's like, what's going on? And he writes in this memoir about this deep sense of abandonment. And how he'd had these seasons of really deep depression. Feeling like, where's God gone? And why is he not rescuing me from this place? Obviously, being an accountant for some people isn't, you know, unpleasant. Apparently. <laughs> Listen to how he talks about that season in his life in the book. He says, The worst of times can also be the best of times. While I was going through those eight wasted years, I would ask God regularly why he was taking so long to rescue me. Now my main question is, why did he not keep me there longer? In that time, my arrogance was dealt a mortal blow. My tendency to rely on my own resources and gifts were undermined so that I began to inquire of the Lord in a way I'd never done before. In the desert, I saw my ambition for what it was and eventually came to a place where I determined to seek God for myself whether I had a ministry or not. More than anything else, I found that when I came to the end of myself, I came to the beginning of God. Powerful, isn't it? I suppose what I'm really saying is, and there'll be people in this room who feel like you're in the wilderness or the desert. What if you're closer to God's glory than the rest of us? What if it's not God's absence, it's his kindness? What if you'll look back on this season in your life as being in one of the most precious seasons of your life? The road to God's glory is the desert road. So God, led, verse 18, so God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. Number three, the road to God's glory is the faith road. It, I don't think there is such a thing as a Christian pub quiz. 
I don't know what you'd call it, what would be the equivalent of a pub quiz, an even song quiz, something like that. But if there was such a thing, then, then maybe one of the questions would be this. Whatever happened to Joseph's bones? Where was Joseph's bones buried? That would be a, tri- a tricky question, wouldn't it? But uh, Again, if, if you're new to church, you're thinking, when he says Joseph, does he mean the Joseph that I'm thinking of right now? Yes, I do mean that Joseph. I close my eyes. <laughs> but that is the Joseph that I mean. It's kind of a riches to rags to riches to rags to riches story. And in the story, which is from in the Bible, actually, you may be not aware of that, but it's in the Bible, um, he finishes his life as one of the world's wealthiest men. So he's got on his finger the signet ring of the Pharaoh of Egypt. He's dressed in the finest linen. Uh, the Bible says that all of Egypt is at his disposal. He's like an incredibly wealthy, influential, powerful person. You know, if we were to, to meet somebody like that now, we would say, you have everything that anyone could ever want. But interestingly, when he comes to the end of his life, in the end of the book of Genesis, he says, don't you dare bury me here. He's about to die. He says, I do not want to be buried in Egypt because God has promised us a land. Bury me there. In other words, he's saying, I'm not settling for anything less than everything that God is offering me. We have to make sure that we never settle. 430 years later, they're carrying his bones out of Egypt. And then 40 years after that, they're digging a hole in the promised land and burying them there. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear on oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. Maybe that's a word for some people, do you know? Like, maybe God has promised you something or whispered something into your heart. Maybe it was years and years ago. Don't let them bury you in Egypt. Don't let them put your bones in the ground when you haven't received what God's promised you. There's a moment there, isn't there? I wasn't expecting it, but hmm. I read a biography of Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple. You know, amazing, amazing leadership journey. Not a very nice person, but you know. And lots of you will know that he, he there were two Steves actually that founded Apple Computer. Steve Wozniak, who was like the techie guy and Steve Jobs, who was like the visionary. But actually, some people don't know that that there was another guy who was there at the very beginning of Apple called Ronald Wayne. And Ronald Wayne, like the other two guys, I think Steve Jobs sold his camper van to put money in, and and Steve Wozniak sold something else, tape player or something like that. And uh, Ronald Wayne didn't have to put any money in because he had the know-how to run a company. And uh, 
uh, he had he written the original instruction manual for the Apple One computer, and so like they basically gave him 10% shares instead of money. So he had he was a 10% stakeholder in Apple Computer at the start. That lasted for 11 days. He started to get freaked out with the way that the other two were planning to spend money, and all the different dreams that they had. And so he sold his shares back for $800. And he later received a further $1,500. So $2,300 he received for a 10% share in Apple. Had he held on to his shares, he would be the 15th richest person in the world. Let's not settle for anything less than everything that we have coming to us. And that's a word for us individually, but it's a word for us as a church as well. If there is more of God's presence and more of his power and more of his glory available to us, as comfy as it is here, let's not stay here. It's the faith road. And the last thing is it's the obedience road. Verse 20, by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. You know, I've been reflecting a lot over, over the last few weeks on our journey as a church because it is a bit ridiculous. You know, like the, the service that I just came from in Aberdeen, that used to be the only service and, and it started to grow. And so we looked for different buildings and, you know, we tried to buy a casino, which I was really excited about because I wanted to be in the newspapers as like, you know, they're always turning churches into pubs, aren't they? I was like, we're taking one back. And, uh, and then somebody, somebody handed me this bit of paper one Sunday and it's, it, was a, it was literally a, um, a, a scrap of notebook paper, a lined notebook paper. I can picture it in my mind. I've still got it at home. And they'd drawn on it a bunch of trees planted next to each other with a rope kind of wrapped around them. And, they, and it was like, and it had the word canopy on it. And it, it was like, and, and strength on it. And, it. and somebody said, I think this is like a prophetic word for how our church is supposed to be. And then, like, they just came thick and fast over that, after that, over, over a series of weeks and months. Different people were, like, thrusting bits of paper in my hand or sending emails or whatever. And then somebody came up with the original founding document for our church, 1992, that used the language of area churches meeting in different places around and about. And it was like, gosh, this is amazing. And, and... I think within a few months, we had 27 individual scraps of paper, emails, different things, and it was unavoidable. I was like, Lord, okay, I might be stupid, but I'm not deaf. And so we have just began on this journey of spreading out. You know, we now have eight different locations, 12 different services, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and planted a bunch of churches. The question is, would we have seen as many people come to know Jesus if we'd have bought the casino? No. Would we have planted as many churches? Would we have seen as much growth as we have if we'd have done what we thought was a good idea? No. The way it works is God leads his people and they follow in this passage, there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
I read a commentary, actually, that said, do you know, those would have been the only people on the face of the earth who would have been able to travel at night. Because it was impossible to do that at that time. They could travel anywhere. They could, all they had to do was just follow. That's how it works. God leads, we follow. He calls, we answer. Jesus said this in John 10. He said, my, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Romans 8, verse 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The road that leads to a communion with God and out of captivity is a road that involves deep obedience. We just have to listen to what God asks us to do and we have to do it. Let's stand.